Our text for this series has come from Hebrews 10.23, which by this point all of you can probably quote. should have it memorized. But let us hold fast the confession of our, of our hope. Boy, we keep getting that. There is a confession of our faith, but we're talking specifically of the confession of our hope. Because there is a confession of hope that is different from the confession of faith. The confession of hope is based on the hope that we have. Hope is always, always future. Hope is never present. Hope is future. There are some things that are present. There are some things that we have been given and there are some things we have been promised. We must understand there is a difference between what is given and what is promised. The confession for what is given is different from the confession of what is promised. Sometimes, especially charismatic folks, we get that all mixed up and we start confessing in the present the things that are promised for the future. We don't need to do that to be in faith. We need to understand what is given, what is ours now, what we have, and use it. And what is promised, we confess. We have a confession of our hope. The word says, without wavering. The reason for it is, because he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. Last week, we started to look at this, this aspect of it. And that is that sometimes we can get discouraged. Sometimes we can get a little down on where we're going, where we're headed. We can lose hope on that. So we talked about last week staying hopeful. We were over in the book of Deuteronomy and how the children of Israel did not stay hopeful to the promise of God. God had given them a promise. Now it came time for them to walk into it. It was still future. It wasn't theirs yet. And they lost the uh, steadfastness of their confession. Not that they were all that steadfast as they wandered through the wilderness anyway, but they lost what steadfastness they had and they wavered quite a bit. But we are not to waver. We are to continue on. We looked at there were three types of hope. Arriving hope, awaiting hope, and the new kingdom hope. That arriving hope is that's those things that we expect to be here at any time. Awaiting hope is those things that we know are coming, but they're not for, they're for some time in the future and we just don't know when. And then there's the new kingdom hopes. And those are hopes that we have for not this life, but the life after. And we know when they're going to come. We have to know when the hope is going to be here. Because sometimes we put thing in the arriving hope we think it's going to be here any day and, and God didn't say that. But we're going to take a look at a story here from the book of 1 Samuel and how people built up their hope after it was dashed. How many have ever had hopes dashed? Going in a direction, I think every single person here can probably say, we have had hopes dashed at one point or another. Somehow, some way, things have come along and, and hopes have become dashed. And we were not as expectant. We were not in that same same place yet. There was a boy who was uh, approached by a uh, one of the parents in a little league game. And when a parent had come on by, he noticed the score. The score was 18 to nothing. And he looked at one of the boys who was on the bench. And he says, uh, he says, boy, this must be discouraging. And the little boy looked at him and said, discouraging? Not at all. We haven't even gotten a chance to get up yet. <laughs> Sometimes it's, it's hard to be, be uh, positive. But they, well, I'll tell you what, little kids are great at keeping things positive. They just don't get bogged down by the details of things that are going on. Sometimes we are. We've talked before, don't be led into a hope by circumstances. Follow after the promises. Don't be led into a, into a, a lack of hope by circumstances. Or fall into a negative hope by circumstances. You follow after the promise. 
When God gives a promise, you stay with it. Joseph had a promise from God. It was a promise for the future. He didn't know when it was going to come about, but it was a promise for the future. And he held on to it. And he kept on going. Thirteen years he waited. It kept seeming like he was going backwards. But he held on to it. And God brought it about. Suddenly, he was promoted and put into that place. Well, we're going to take a look at how hope can be destroyed. And hope can be destroyed from things, two things I put in here in your outline. Two things that can destroy our, our hope. You might be able to come up with some others. I'm not telling you these are only two things, but two main things that I came up with. First off, hope may can be destroyed from things we fear may come. How many of you have had hope destroyed because you were afraid this was going to happen? I just, uh, I just know it's going to be this way. Sometimes you talk with people and they've had a relative die of a certain disease. And they've had that fear for years that I'll get that. And they just fear that they don't know when it's going to come, but they have this fear that this thing is going to come upon them. And it can destroy their hope that the Word of God gives us about health and about healing. Another way is uh, hope can be destroyed from things that surprise us entirely. Things that we fear, we kind of we see them on the horizon and we expect them to come. But sudden, sometimes, suddenly things come at us. You ever had that? You woken up one day and all of a sudden, oh, it's just not the same that it was before. Something, something happened. You get a note from the boss. You get a letter in the mail. You get an email. You get uh, read something in the paper. You get a pink slip over at work. Something suddenly happened. You weren't expecting it. You didn't foresee this and it came upon you suddenly. So some of those things can come upon us. They wear at us. They're fears that we see off in the distance. And that suddenly they come upon us. Well, one day they do come upon us. And the other ones are suddenly, they surprise us entirely. But not from what we know is coming and hold as an expected outcome. You will not have hope destroyed from what you know is coming. And we've talked in the past, and that's why we're building so much on the foundation of this thing, that there are some negative aspects to hope. Jesus had the hope to redeem the world. But what was the negative aspect that He had? Crucifixion, the cross, all the things, that he, being betrayed, being beaten. Those are all negative things, aren't they? That's not something we necessarily look forward to. Paul was told, you're going to be in prison on his way. But he had the hope of the end and the hope of the end was glorious. Hope may have some hard times, but it always has a glorious end if it's from God. Peter was told by Jesus, People are going to dress you and take you out and this is how you're going to die. That wasn't necessarily the best of hope. He said, when you're young, you dress yourself. When you're old, someone else is going to dress you. And he's not going to be under his own control. He was told by that. But the end was glorious, wasn't it? For God, it's always a glorious end, but sometimes the way that the, the times are tough. And it's a whole lot easier to endure tough times when God tells you ahead of time, all right, here's where you're going. This is what you're going to face on the way. How many of you like that? Isn't that why we get traffic reports? This is where I want to go. This is my hope. This is where I want to head to. But on the way, I'm going to face this problem. It's a whole lot easier if you get on the Schuylkill Expressway and find it slow to know that, alright, this is slow, but the blue route's worse. Isn't it better? Because otherwise you're on the, the Schuylkill Expressway, you're heading into the city, and it's bad, bad and you're thinking, oh, I should have gone the blue route. Oh, I should have taken 95 in. 
But if you checked the traffic ahead of time, you found out all the roads are bad, but this one's a little bit better than the other ones are. So you take that way. And you know ahead of time to endure it, and the whole time you're not second-guessing yourself. So sometimes God gives us the heads up that there's going to be traffic on the road. There's going to be problems. There's an accident. There's, there's something that, uh, ahead that's going to slow you down because you know all the, other, all the other cars have to get by and whatever it might be. He'll warn us sometimes about things that are on the, along the way. But not always. Joseph wasn't warned about anything, was he? He just told the end result. End result is you're going to be a ruler. He didn't know about all the other stuff on the way. That made it a little bit tougher to deal with. So there are times that you're not always told the tough stuff on the way. But there's times that you are. So what do you do when that tough stuff comes up and you weren't warned about it? How do you deal with that? That's what we started with last week. We're going to look at it some more here with this one. We call this ascending hope because this is hope getting back on the rise again after it was destroyed. So hope can be destroyed by a couple of things. Fear and things that come upon us suddenly. Things that come upon us gradually because we fear them. We see them off in the horizon. At least we expect they might come upon us. And other stuff we didn't see at all. I put it in your outline this way. Fear is like a wave against a barrier wall. It just continually hits it and hits it and hits it and wears it away and wears it away until one day the barrier wall just collapses. That's what fear is like. It just keeps coming at you. Keep wearing you away. But the unexpected is like a wrecking ball. You don't see it coming at all. All of a sudden, bam! And there's the end result. Destruction. Well, this situation we're going to look at is from the latter. From this study. Let me give you some of the, the setting that had gone on here in the chapters before. And you can go on back when you're home this afternoon or this evening and read some of the chapters that had gone before this. But David had been tired, had gotten tired of running from Saul. And so what he does is he says, I'm going to go over into the land of the Philistines. And he heads over to the Philistines and he aligns himself with Achish, one of the Philistine rulers. And he says to the Philistine ruler, he says, give me a city for my men so we're not inhabiting the the uh, capital city with you. And so they give him Ziglag, Ziglag. And he operates out of Ziglag. And he runs all these raids out of Ziglag over into the territory of Israel. He does not kill Israelites. He does not raid Israelite cities. Whom he raids are the cities of the inhabitants of the land from old who were condemned and God had said they should all die. And so he comes into those cities that are inhabited by those folks. And when he attacks the city, he kills everyone. Now, that sounds brutal to us, but that's what God had told the Israelites to do in the first place, to go into the land and to kill all the inhabitants, men, women, and children. A lot of it was because of the idolatry they were into and because giant blood had mixed in with these folks. And God had to eliminate them. The flood got rid of them all the first time and the Israelites were supposed to get rid of them the second time. And they did not. And David is the one who finally gets rid of all the last of them. So he goes in and raids all these cities and kills all these folks. And then when he comes back, Achish says, where did you go today? Oh, I was over in the southern part of Judah. You know, making some raids. And he leaves it wide open for the king, for Achish, to decide he's gone and raided Israelite cities. But David never said he raided Israelite cities. He just said he was in the area of Israel. He found cities that were not inhabited by Israelites. And he killed all them. He killed them all so that no one would come on out and say, David raided us. Now, I want you to think of this feat. David has 600 men. He raids cities, villages or towns, whatever they were. It, it, it does say cities in there. 
Can you imagine 600 men coming upon a city, not only conquering it, but getting every single inhabitant dead? Everyone. No one escapes. 600 guys. Can you imagine doing that? Now, what kind of men did David have? You all remember this from the chapters before. What kind of men came to David? They eventually became mighty men, but what were they first? They were worthless men. They were the unwanted of society. They were people in debt. They were people dissatisfied. They were people that no one else wanted. And David took them all in. And out of these guys, they kept adding to them and his numbers kept growing. These 600 men went out and they conquered all kinds of things. They did all sorts of stuff. And they got very rich because they would raid cities and they'd take all the stuff into cities home. And they'd keep all the stuff. They'd kill all the people. So he becomes alive with Achish and he makes raids in all these areas. The uh, king Achish thinks that he's making raids upon Israel. And so all of a sudden this huge battle comes up between the Philistines and the Israelites. This is the battle that would eventually kill Saul. Saul would die in this battle. It was a very, very large battle. And they were gathering all of the lords of the Philistines. And David came in among them. Now, imagine David's plight. Why is David in this plight? Because he left the land of Israel. He went into the area of the Philistines and he allied himself with them. And he passed off his raids as going against Israel. And so Achish just assumes to bring him along. In fact, the Bible even says that Achish says, now he will be loyal to me forever because his own people despise him. So David must be thinking, well, I've been telling this guy, I've been raiding these folks for all these uh, months. It's actually uh, one year and four months he's been doing this. I can't say I'm not going to go into battle. And so he lines up to go into battle. But imagine the predicament David is in. David has the promise to be king over Israel. And now he has to go war against them. Most times you don't pick the kings from the people who war against you. That's just usual, you know. Most mostly happens. So imagine the predicament. This, the Bible doesn't talk anything about it at all. But there has to be a predicament from the standpoint of, of David. He's got to be thinking, I have to go into this battle. But I can't go against my own people. Because that goes away from the promise of God. The promise of God is that I'm going to be ruler. I've been anointed to be king. I cannot go in there and kill them. But I can't necessarily go, against, go away from this either. This is my, my, my protection. So David is in the spot. Whether he's in the spot of a good accord or not, we don't know. So we ask the question this way. Should David be there? <laughs> I don't think he should be. David might even think he should be. He feels like he's uh, stuck in this one. But anyway, it all works out because all the rest of the lords of the Philistines say, "Who is? why is he following us? He's an Israelite. He's a valiant warrior. We're going to get in the battle and he's going to turn against us and it's going to be really bad. So you go home. You go back to Ziglag. And so they send them all back to Ziglag. Now, this has been a couple of days that have gone by. I believe the Word of God tells us about three days. So the men went back with David. And now we come to chapter 30 and verse 1. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziglag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziglag attacked Ziglag and burned it with fire and had taken captive the woman and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city and there it was burned with fire and their wives, their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Now these are, this attack comes from 
some of the very people that David was making raids against. They probably don't know that David was making the raids because they would have done the same thing to them that David had done, which was to kill everyone. So I don't think they necessarily knew that David was the one behind this. Again, David took precautions to make sure he killed everybody. But uh, this is what the Word of God says. But David does not know this because David did not have the advantage that we have of reading 1 Samuel chapter 30. They just come to the city, it's burned, and everyone's gone. What would you think? Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. That's a lot of crying. These are soldiers. And David's two wives, the Ahinoam and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed for a couple of reasons. One, he's lost his family and all the people want to kill him. For the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. The soul of every one of them was grieved. They lost hope, didn't they? Have you ever had a, play, a point in your life where you lost hope? Where things happen, whether suddenly or the fear gradually wears you away and all of a sudden you wake up one day and you have no hope. Oh, it's all gone. I don't know where I'm going to go. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how things are going to turn around for me. It just seems like this is it. Either I made a mistake, God made a mistake, I don't know who made the mistake, but oh, this is, this is, har- har- this is horrible. This is painful. This is tough. How many have been in those situations? I mean, financial situations can get you there. Relationship situations, emotional situations, uh, job situations. You name it, you can get put into this kind of situation. You can get into this place. And it can just seem like there is nothing to live for. There's no reason to go on. And David and his men are at this spot. And David not only has to deal with the fact that his family has been taken, he also has to deal with the fact that his men want to kill him. And David loves his men. One thing you'll find out about David, David loves the men who serve him a great deal. And now these folks want to rise up and kill him. Now I ask this question here. What was different? What was different about this raid? Why does this disaster happen on this one? Up until now, David never left men behind in the city to take care of the city. All the men went out, all the men fought, and all the men came back. That's just how it has been. Every raid they've gone on, all the men left, all the men came back. And they would raid and they would come back. But this one, the only thing that was different about it was it seemed like this one took a couple of days. But again, we asked the question, was David supposed to be here? I don't know that David was supposed to be there, but David was there because first off, he deceived Achish and let him know that I'm raiding Israel. He didn't actually tell him I'm raiding Israelite cities, but he let Achish go on and assume that. And he's never rebuked for it, but I can't imagine that that was necessarily a good thing to do. So they all want to stone David. Now, was this David's fault? I don't know. I want to ask all the rest of the men, you know, all the guys, all the rest of the guys. Did any of you think we shouldn't go? And you know what? I bet you there might have been some of them who said so. Because all these men came from where? Israel. Israel. So how how many do you do you want to think that some of these guys came up and said, David, we're going to go fight against Israel? 
I mean, that's my hometown. That may be my hometown. We're going to get my, my brother's in the army. I think he might have heard that from a few folks. And I think some of the people in the army may not have been all on board with this trip like they were before. To go and kill the enemies of Israel, everyone can get on board with that. But to go and fight with the enemies of Israel, the Philistines, against their home cities, their hometown, their families, I'll bet you that out of the 600 men, there are some who are saying, you know what, I don't want to go. But they all went. They followed their leader. They all realized we're here because David has said this. But they all went. And David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. Now, I was going to get into, you know, how does David seek after God with the ephod? But if I was to do that, no one in here in this church would. But you might tell people who are, you know, friends of yours, and they might try it. We are not to seek the Lord out by using an ephod. So there's really no sense in teaching you how to how they did it or how to use one. Right? That's just kind of ridiculous. We are, we, how do we seek after God? Holy Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit. You don't bring out the ephod. Yeah, <laughs> it's Old Testament. We got the Holy Spirit living on the inside of us. Yeah. So, you know, you go with the new way of doing it. You know, we were working on something around the shop uh, the other day. Had to a, had a fit a new tool into a, an old spot. There was an old tool that was there. New tool had to get in there. And, and uh, we were working on trying to, to change the fence. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm a modern day tool guy. Modern day tool guy, you know what you use? Power tools. The more power, the better. Tim, the tool man and me, we got along just fine. I like more power. Even if I don't need it, I want to have it. Because more power is better than less power. <laughs> you know, why in the world buy the craftsman when you can buy the Bosch? Yeah, that's my philosophy on it. <laughs> I like, I want more power on those tools. So we're fitting this thing on in and, and I got the power tool out and we're trimming the saw down because we couldn't pull, pull the fence out. The fence had to stay there. And we're trimming the, um, the thing on down and we're, we're cutting it. And then, um, it's just, it's not going to make it. It's not going to make it because we can't get the power tool into the, into the angle, right? And so Jeremy has to suggest and he says, um, you know, do you have a handsaw? I said, a what? <laughs> You know, a handsaw. You mean one of those ones you? Yeah, one of those. I think I got one around here somewhere. I don't. I don't even know the last time I used it. <laughs> so you know, it was pretty sharp because it's never been used. <laughs> so we brought that thing out, and sure enough, it did work. Work that way. But you know, I like modern tools. I don't want to pull a handsaw out when I can grab the table saw, or get <laughs> get out a circular saw, or. Or, or, you know, at least get the jigsaw out. Something. But anyway, sometimes you just have to go back into the, into the old way of, of thinking of, of things. Old school. New school. Which way are you going to go? Old school here is the ephod. You don't need that anymore. Go with the new school way. New school way is? Holy Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit. He lives on the inside of you now. 
He lives among us. Ask Him. He'll talk to you about it. Don't go back to the old way. There's some of those wood magazines that are out there. They teach people how to do uh, dovetails. How many like dovetails? You ever see dovetails in a drawer? Well, there, there are still folks that are, go out there and they teach people how to do this with a chisel. Dear Lord, I would never want to learn that. I'll get my router anytime and, and have that thing done in five minutes. But you get some of those old timers out there, that's oh, just not the same thing. I want a chisel. And they're going to chisel that thing so that it just fits. Oh, it's probably real satisfying, but thank God for the Holy Spirit. So we're not going to get into the F out here this morning. So David went, he and the six, whoops, I'm sorry, I missed part of this. So David inquired the Lord saying, shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake them and without fail recover all. So here's the thing. David has a promise from God. You are going to be king. This is the promise he is pursuing. This is the hope that he has. But along the way, the surprise came up. Ziglag is burned. His wife, wives are taken away. The kids, the men's wives, all that sort of stuff, they're all gone. And he wasn't expecting this. So he goes after God and God gives him another promise. This is another hope, isn't it? Here's your hope. Go after them. You will. You're going to rec- you will recover all. This is the hope. You will recover all. Remember this. This is real important understanding this passage here. Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them and without fail recover all. That's a pretty powerful promise, isn't it? Now, if that's the promise, would the promise be fulfilled if you recovered four-fifths? If everyone got their wife back but one guy? No. You will recover all. It even tax on there without fail. So David went, he and the 600 men who were with him and came to the brook Besor where those who stayed where those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued he and 400 men for 200 stayed behind who were so weary that they could not cross the, the brook Besor. Now understand, they had gone on this three-day trek before with the Philistines and they were expecting to go into battle and they weren't so they went home instead. And how many of you had a long day? And when you've had a long day, you're just so looking forward to getting home and sitting down and putting your feet up or just you know enjoying yourself. Well, this is a long three days. And at the end of a long three days, I'm sure that they're looking forward. They're probably just thinking, oh, I just can't wait to get home and hug my kids and see my wife and enjoy a nice home-cooked meal, whatever it might be that they're thinking about. And then they get home and find out their home's burned, their wives are gone, and their kids are gone. Even took the dog. Took it all. Everything's gone. No cats. They were forbidden in the Old Testament. <laughs> that's the Steve Heck doctrine of cats, but that's <laughs> no. They, I don't know that they really had it. Egyptians had cats. I don't know about anybody else, but but David pursued he and the four hundred men. So two hundred stayed behind. They're just too tired to go on, and the other other ones went on. Well, they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David, and they gave him bread and he ate, and they let him drink water, and they gave him a piece of cake and figs and two clusters of raisins. Soon he had, when he had eaten, his strength came back to him, for he had eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. Now, put this in the modern era. Understand this from a modern perspective. They have come upon one of the enemy. This is one from the group who came out to attack. He may be a servant, 
but he still had to do whatever his master said and was somehow responsible for taking the stuff out of Ziglag and helping to burn it. This is who they come about. And David, when they see him, they give him bread, they give him cake, they give him water. Now, try and transfer this into the modern era. How would Jack Bauer have handled this? Right? I mean, you've got to think of it this way. How would Jack Bauer have handled finding the Egyptian? How would he get him to talk? He would strap him up against the wall and, uh, and let him know, you will tell me! <laughs> he'd shoot him in the leg or do something like that. He'd, he, you will tell me. And then once he told him, he didn't care what happened to him. He's just going to go on and pursue. But David's a little bit different than Jack Bauer. David is not Jack Bauer. David goes in there and he says, let's give him some food. Let's give him some water. How you feeling? Feeling okay? Oh, I'm still a little weak. That's all right. Here's some more food. Here's have a, have a cake. Have some more water. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing better. This is the guy who was instrumental in helping the enemy, but somehow involved. I'm going to say instrumental, but somehow involved in helping the enemy take on his city. How many of you are giving him food and cakes and water and stuff like that? I don't know how much we're doing that. How you doing? Things going okay? All right. You're getting your strength back? Good. What happened? What went on? And David said to him, now this is real key what this guy says because you can read right over this and miss this. David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man from Egypt, servant of an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. We made an invasion of the southern area of the Cherethites in the territory which belongs to Judah, in the southern area of Caleb, and we burned Ziglag with fire. Now, I don't know why he specifically mentioned Ziglag unless he knew that's where they came from, or maybe he didn't know that's where they came from and that was the freshest thing on his mind. Whatever it is, they hear this. I'm sure that they're a little upset with the gentleman that they have in their custody at this point. But think of, I want you to think of this from a different standpoint. What was the promise of God? You will recover all. The Amalekites left behind one of their servants because he was sick. This was one of theirs. How do you think that makes them think they're going to treat what is David's? How would you be thinking about it? If they did this to a servant of their own that they brought with them and left him here to die, what do you think they did to ours? I mean, Joe, your wife wasn't feeling real good when we left. What do you think they did to her if she couldn't make the trip? you think they did the same thing? I mean, it might be... How many of you know this kind of conversation can go on? They might be saying, you know what? They let him live maybe because he was theirs and gave him a, a, a fighting chance. But maybe one of ours, they just killed and buried in the sand somewhere. We may walk right past them. How many of them are thinking this? What's the promise from God? You will recover all. What's the confession? We will recover all. We will recover all. What's the wavering? Well, I'm not so sure. I mean, we may be losing some here. See how you can waver? How easy it is? How things can come up? Some of them could be wavering on this. And David said to him, can you take me down to this troop? So he said, Swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master and I will take you down to this troop. 
So he just don't give me back to them. I saw what they did. Don't give me back to them. And don't kill me yourselves. As long as you don't do those two things, I'll take you on down. So the, you can see that the men are getting hopeful here, but this, this little incident right here could have set them back a little bit. Well, we may not recover at all, we may, but we, we, we could probably recover some. So God gives a promise, which gives all hope, and then this Egyptian comes up. They could waver on this a little bit. We've got to hang on to it, just like we should. Verse 16, when he had brought him down, there they were, spread out all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. I don't even know that they're home yet. They're all still in camp and they all get in there and they have this big party going on. Now there's a verse of Scripture and some of you may have heard me quote this. I love quoting this verse of Scripture. This is one of the verses of Scripture I just have so much fun quoting. I love to quote it to people who are being boastful in the area of sporting events. I love this verse of Scripture. I've quoted many, many a night at hockey. And it comes from 1 Kings. If any of you have ever heard me say this and want to know where it comes from, it comes from 1 Kings 20, verse 11. Now, it is a quote from a heathen king. But it's a good quote. I mean, this is a Jack Bauer quote. This is what the king says. And this is what he's... he's uh, uh, King Ahab. You all know King Ahab? King Ahab speaks and says this to the enemy king. Because the enemy king is boasting a little bit. And he says this. Tell him... Let not the men, let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. <laughs> oh, I love that quote. <laughs> In other words, if you're suiting up for the game, don't talk like it's over already. You got to finish it, and I'm in your way. <laughs> That's a great quote. Bad king, good quote. You can use that for yourself if you want to, but it's a it's a fun one. So, they're all down there. They're acting like the, everything is done. Everything is won. There are no more enemies around. They've conquered all. They're out there having a party. And David's come upon them. Uh-huh. Then David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. Not sure what the significance of the camels is, but they rode on the camels and they, and they fled away. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away and David rescued his two wives. And nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all. Now, again, we don't know exactly should David have been in this situation? Should he not have been in this situation? Is this a good thing for David to be in? Or We don't know exactly that. God doesn't rebuke him, but we can see some holes. We can see some flaws in the why he was there. You know, sometimes, how many of you all know, sometimes we can create some situations for ourselves. Haven't we, we done that before? There was a story I, I heard about this, uh, this guy. I mean, he just created this situation for himself. He, no one else did this to him. He just did this himself. He was... Uh, he was a man, he just got passionate about certain things. And at this particular time in his life, he was passionate about crazy glue. Love crazy glue. And he just wanted to show all the world how strong and how good crazy glue was. And so while visiting the Eagles Rock African Safari Zoo with a group from St. Petersburg, Russia, 
this man named Demuth. He tried to demonstrate one of the many American marvels. Crazy glue. And so what he did, what he did was he took three ounces of crazy glue and he put it onto his hands. And he walked up behind the rhinoceros in the, in the, uh, area there. And he put his hands on the rhinoceros, which instantly bonded to the rhinoceros. Now, this rhinoceros had been a long time resident of the zoo, had been in the zoo for a long, long time, and had actually become part of the petting zoo that they had there. And so it was not a surprise for the rhinoceros to have hands put on. This was okay. Because it had been, been touched before. I don't think they kept it necessarily in the open, but it was, uh, it was out there and, and, uh, the hands were on it. And so it was kind of calm at first, but then after a while, the, the rhinoceros got a little tired of being touched and began to move away. Well, the moose was attached to the rhinoceros because of the crazy glue that was on three ounces of crazy glue. He was stuck to this thing. And so the rhinoceros, as he followed the rhinoceros, the rhinoceros started to get a little upset. A little, uh, little, I think the rhinoceros' name is Sally. Got a little bit upset about the whole thing. And, and so it started to move around the yard faster and began to run and to jump and to, uh, and it took out a couple of fences. I think two fences were lost because of what this rhinoceros did. And still, the mooth is right behind. It gored a shed. A couple of animals got trampled. There was a duck that got trampled and died. There were two or three goats that got trampled and died as a result of this escapade of this rhinoceros going around. And, uh, and still, the mooth was behind. Now, how many think this is bad, a pretty bad situation? Well, it was made worse by the fact that Sally had been uh, under the care of a veterinarian because Sally had been constipated. And so the veterinarian had given Sally some laxatives. And well, because of all the activity of running around the yard, it kind of made the laxatives kick in a little faster. And Demuth is in the right end. And you can kind of get the picture of what happened to Demuth as this whole thing is going on. Well, eventually they get enough people out there to help the situation that they get the rhinoceros sedated. And, 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 uh, it took like four or five veterinarians to get on out there and they got this rhinoceros sedated. And the, the, the mooth is still attached. And they, um, uh, had to use some shovels to keep a breathing passageway open for the mooth so he could breathe while they applied all kinds of solvents to his hands to get his hands detached from the animal. Well, they eventually did get it all detached and he was free. But at the end, uh, there was a particular guy in the group, uh, Vladimir Olnikov. He was the leader of the Russian group that had gone into the, the zoo. He said that he was quite amazed by the demonstration and the impressive power of Crazy Glue. <laughs> now, Demuth created that situation himself, didn't he? <laughs> Sometimes we create situations ourselves, but it doesn't mean we don't need help. I can't tell you whether David created this situation for himself or not. 
But I can tell you that God came along and helped him out and gave him a promise about his situation. You will recover all. Now, they had to hang on to that. They had to realize, we will recover all. If some of the men came around and said, they, they, they let this servant die. They left him out there to die just because he was sick. What do you think they did to our kids? What do you think they did to our wives? They probably talked like that around, but they had to say, no, no, no. This is what the promise of God was because the Word of God tells us to do what with our confession? Hold fast. Don't waver. Hold fast to the confession of your hope. Stay with it. So David attacked them from twilight until evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David, David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away and David rescued his two wives. And nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all, just like the promise. Then David took all the flocks and herds that they had, driven before them, livestock, and said, This is David's spoil. Now David came to the 200 men who had been so weary they could not follow David, whom they had made to stay at the brook Besor. So they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And, and David came near the people. Uh, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except for every man's wife and child that they may lead them away and depart. Now, which men came and said this? The wicked and worthless. How many of David's men were wicked and worthless? Weren't all of them wicked and worthless? <laughs> Wasn't it all of them? But can you see in this story that some of them had elevated themselves above being wicked and worthless and became something simply because David believed in them? Because apparently not all the men thought this way. Just It just says just the wicked and worthless ones did. So some had transferred themselves out of the wicked and worthless area and moved into another area. But some of them had not. But they all had the same opportunity. And the thing that this distinguished the wicked and worthless people in this story are the people who were greedy with what God blessed them with. Don't be greedy with what God blessed you with. Don't be over there hanging on. You know, that's why tithing is so important. That's why we, Brother Naz comes up and teaches you every week about stuff on giving because it's important. Don't be greedy with what God has given you. If you get greedy with what God has given you, guess what category you're in? Wicked and worthless. Don't be in the wicked and worthless group. Be in the other group. Don't be greedy with what God has blessed you with. Say, God, you've blessed me with all this. Thank you. And stay on the thankful side. See, those wicked and worthless men hadn't had gotten out of the area of being thankful. We talked about being thankful for a number of weeks. How important it was that we stay thankful. And these folks got out of that. And they, no, this is mine. They were no longer thankful for what God had blessed them with. No, no, no. This is mine. Understand, they went back and they got all of their stuff. But this group of people that had gone out had not only taken all the stuff from Ziglag, but all the things from these other territories. So when they went and got all the stuff from Ziglag, they got all of their stuff plus all the other stuff. So they had a whole lot. It's like if you lost $1,000 and got $10,000 back. I don't know what, what, time, what kind of a percentage it was, but it was, a, it was more 
than they had. I'm sure they would rather not have gone through it, but it was more than they had. And they got that in. Oh, it's so easy for us to become greedy when God has blessed us with things. Don't ever do that. These folks, they were looked at as being wicked and worthless. And we do not, don't want to be in that, in that area. So what's David do with the spoils? Well, but David said, My brethren, you shall not do so what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is his is who goes down the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. So it was from that day forward, he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. Now when David came to Ziglag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah and to his friends saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. To those who were in Bethel, and it goes through all these different cities and places he sent it, but look down to the last verse, verse 31. And to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to move. So David takes the spoil from the Lord. What's he do with it? He uses it as seed. Instead of just using it all, he uses it as seed. And he says, I'm going to sow seed to have goodwill among these people. Because these are the people God has called me to rule. And I'm going to sow a seed and have some goodwill. He sowed the seed in Judah. Who is the first tribe that makes him king? You think that seed had a, had a harvest? <laughs> it sure did. David's saying, what can we do with the spoil? Well, we can get rich or we can do something. I know, we can sow a seed. We can sow a seed to some folks. That's just going down because those folks got raided. Those folks had people. These people came and took stuff from them. We're going to go back there and they didn't do anything to get it back. But we're going to give them some. Here are some spoil. Here are some of the things from the enemies of the Lord. And he sent it on down there. Think that got some goodwill for David? Here's Saul losing battles all the time. And losing uh, the wealth of Israel. And here's David. 600 men. Pulling in all the supplies. What do you think that kind of does to the thought minds of the people of Judah? David runs, has 600 men at his disposal and he gets so much stuff, he's sending it to us. Saul has the entire army of Israel and we can't defeat the enemies we face. What do you think that does? I think Saul, his time's up. Well, of course, Saul dies, so his time was up, but I think they're, they're thinking about these kind of things. So, how do we restore hope? David got to a place where the hope was all gone. How do we restore hope? What do we have to do? What do we learn from this story? What can we take from this story that we can get to that place when all hope is lost in our life that we can restore hope? Well, we're going to look at it from the two different types of things that come against you. First off, fear. If hope has been pulled from you because of fear, that's a slow grinding process. It's like waves against the barrier wall. The ocean just keeps coming and coming and coming until finally that wall collapses because I fear this thing is coming. I fear this disease that my uh, parents died of. I fear this disease that my grandparents died of. I fear this result that happened because it always happens in my family. I fear these, these things that come on me. So what do we have to do if, if the problem is fear and this eroding that goes on against your hope? Here's what you do. First off, renew ourselves on the promise. 
renew yourself on the promise. Go back to the Word of God and pull out the promises of God and renew yourself on them. God, what have you promised me? Because fear is pulling that out of you. What has God promised you about that area? What has He said for you? Look at the general promises in the Word of God. Don't have to be specific to you. You're looking at the Word of God. God, what have you promised your kids? What have you promised your children? What kind of things have you said would happen to me? And you go back through and you find the promises in the Word of God and you renew yourself on them. What was said? Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. I got to go back to the promise. I got to renew myself on that promise. And you may say, oh, I don't need to do that. I don't need to, to, to do that. Surely I, I know that so well. Nope, you obviously you do. If fear is getting in, you need to renew yourself on the promise. Don't be telling anybody anything else. You need to renew yourself on the promise. I told you before by the job I had, I worked at Ken's Pizza for a number of years. And one of the things that they would do, you know, I moved myself up in the ranks in there and got to be uh, shift leader and system manager and management training and all that sort of stuff. And and one of the things they have you sit through is you have these security things you have to go through. They have a lot of security protocols at the at the restaurant, not just you know lock the door and and stuff like that. And and most of the security protocols we followed. <laughs> most of them. I mean, there were some protocols that uh, first off didn't seem as important as what was going on. One of the protocols that they would say, you know, is all the money in the drawer would get dropped into the bottom of the safe. I have a really fun safe story, but I'm not going to tell that one here today. Some of you may have heard that before. Oh, I love my safe story. We we had fun with that safe. But one of the things you would do is is that, you know, the money, because Friday night, it's not nice. Like you're just piling money into that register. People are giving you 20s, giving you two 20s, three. They're just, you know, buying one pizza, two pizzas, three pizzas, and you're just put money in there. It does not take long for money to get built up in there. And generally, we put the larger bills and you only keep maybe 120 out in the in the front and we put the rest of it underneath. And what you're supposed to do is to make drops. Well, the drop's down in the bottom of the safe and they had a little slide. You put the slide, put it down the slide and get it. But you have to get all the way down the floor and you'd have to stop doing whatever it was that you're doing. And so a lot of us in the management team, what we ended up doing was we just took some of the money and we shoved it in our back pocket. That way it was out of sight. Now, we didn't shove it in our back pocket with the purpose of taking it home. We just wanted to get out of the way because we had to make sure that the books worked by the end of the night and so you couldn't keep money in your back pocket. But that seemed to solve it. Now, that was not security protocol. <laughs> People who came into the off- from the office and they say, what do you do with it? Well, we drop it right, right there in the state. Just drop it. That's what we do. <laughs> but that was not true all the time. And I remember one time they were really short and they called me up. I had a... I didn't work the late night. And they called me up and they say, Steve, you have any money in your pocket? I don't know. Let me go check. They were, they were really short. And uh, I checked in my pocket. I didn't have any money in my pocket at all. I fortunately had emptied it all out before I had left. Now, I don't have any money. Well, eventually they did find out where it went to. But one of the things was uh, I had engaged a reporter. They called us up on the phone because some things had happened in the city and they wanted to see how we were affected uh, as far as our business was concerned. And I told them some things about how we were affected. And uh, got a little bit too much detail. I didn't give him a whole lot of detail, but I gave him more detail than I should. And so it went into the paper. And the next day, the area general manager came into our store. Steve, what are you doing? Come here. Uh, did you uh, give this quote to this person? Yeah, I did. 
you know you're not supposed to do that. You know I didn't think of it at the time, but yeah, you're right. I shouldn't have even given them that much of information. Uh, I, I shouldn't have done that because you just opened the store up. People might want to come on in here and, and uh, do something. I said, yes, sir, I shouldn't have done that. He says, all right, well, you've got to go in the back and you've got to go through all of our security tapes again. Just listen, and you listen to them. Now, could I argue with him? Oh, no, no, absolutely. Because what, what I have to stand on? I blew it. I made a mistake. <laughs> I should not have given the information out to the reporter, but I did. So what I had to do? I said, yes, sir, I'll go back right now and I'll, I'll sit through there and I'll, I'll listen. And, I'll, and I went through there, like two or three security tapes, went through all of them. And I made sure I didn't, you know, I didn't need the tape anymore to tell me, don't talk to reporter calls once they ask anything. No comment. I never had any comments from reporters at all. And that was way back when I used to like the news. If you're allowing fear to come in, folks, don't stand there before God and say, I don't need to renew myself in the promise. You don't have a leg to stand on. Fear is coming in because of something you fear in your job, something you fear in finances, something you fear in whatever it is that's going on in your life. You need to go back and renew yourself on the promise. What does the Word of God promise me in that area? And then the second thing, renew ourselves in the promises first. Second thing, don't waver from what God said. If you are battling fear, taking away what it is that you've been promised, what it is that you hope, you hope for, and all hope is gone, you need to go back and renew yourself on the promise and don't waver from what God said. Because if you're allowing fear to come in, folks, you are doing one or both of these things. You may want something deeper, something greater. Some, okay, tell me something more specific. No, you don't need it. This is what you need to do. Go back, renew yourself on the promise, and don't fear. Don't waver from what God said. But what happens when you have a thing like this? Sudden events. A sudden event came in. Well, get before God and find out, is this part of the plan? You know, for Joseph, is this part of the plan? Am I supposed to be here? He probably asked God that. Whether God told him anything on it, I don't know. We don't have that recorded. David goes before God. I wasn't expecting Ziglag to be burned. What should we do? And God says, go, get him. You'll recover it all. Not only did he recover it all, he recovered more. And he recovered so much more, he was able to take that and use it as a seed into the area of Judah and get people in Judah to be thinking about David. When Saul died, who is Judah thinking about right now? David. He's been out of there for a month, for a year and four months. But he got himself fresh in our mind from seed that God gave him. This is what we're going to do. So get before God and find out, is this part of the plan? Or what do we need to do now? If this is part of the plan, I just need to endure it like Joseph did. That's fine, then I know to endure it. Or what do I need to do now? Ask God. Hear what God says. God, what am I supposed to do? If God doesn't say anything to you, then you keep... I don't know that God said anything to Joseph. We never are told that He said anything to Joseph at all. All that we have is that Joseph was to hang on. Keep going. Abraham was given a promise. It took 25 years for that promise to come about, didn't it? 24 years till she got pregnant. 25 years till baby was born. And now it's just one baby. That's not father of many. That's father of one. That took a long time for that promise to come through. What was, what was Abraham supposed to do? When God came, there showed up a couple times. But every time God came, what did he say? The same thing he said before, just a little different way. Renew yourself on the promise. 
and don't waver from that confession. God, you have said that everything I set my hand to will be successful. That's a promise from you. I thank you for that promise. And just go on through. We haven't gotten into the, the aspect yet of, of finding the promises of God and making the confessions, but we're going to get there. We've got to lay all this, this uh, all the kind of groundwork down first. Well, that's what we, we need to we need to get to get, get what God's plan is. Find out what God's plan is. What do I need to do now? There was a story of a golfer who was nearsighted, and he came up to the tee and he put his little thing in the in the ground to tee off, and it was right over top of an ant mound. All these ants lived in this this mound, and this guy was nearsighted and he starts swinging away at the ball. He keeps missing the ball. He hits before the ball side of the ball, front of the ball, but he's not hitting the ball. The ball still stays there. And he's tearing the ant, the ant mound apart and killing the ants. Ants are dying. He just keeps swinging away and swinging away and ants are dying. Finally, the ant colony gets down to two ants. And the two ants, one ant says to the other ant, he says, you know what? If we're going to survive, we better get on the ball. Yeah. <laughs> Folks, if we're going to survive, we better get on the ball. Stay with it. If fear is tearing down your hope, renew yourself on the promise. You may know Him, but renew yourself on the promise. And don't waver from what God said. If it's because of a sudden event that happened, find out from God. Is this part of the plan? Or what do we need to do now? How do I need to handle this? What's going on? And God will tell you. God will work with you. If He doesn't tell you anything, then stay with whatever it is that God promised you originally. Stay with whatever general promises are in the Word of God. Don't let them go. Do not waver. Hang on to your confession. Father, this is what you said. This is what's going on. Brother Hagin used to tell us a story when his daughter got uh, came down with something and his wife wrote her about it. He didn't just uh, write her back and say she's healed. He went and he meditated on the promises of God for healing. For a little while before he ever wrote her back. He was going around the country teaching on healing. He knew the, those verses of Scripture backwards and forwards. Could quote them. But he told us, always. he told us, I took the time to meditate on those Scriptures. It was important. We need to renew ourselves on the promises of God. It's the easiest if you have them written in your promise book. It's easier if you have it in your, in your book that we had, uh, had your write stuff into. Principles. Write those things in. Going back there or just open it up. This is what I'm hanging on to. This is what I'm going after. What is it that God has promised you in His Word? What is your hope based on? And don't let it waver. Would you all stand up with me? Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the power of it. We thank You that there are promises in Your Word made for us and that we are not to waver we are to hold fast the confession of our hope. Those promises that You have given us are going to come about because Your Word says that He who promised is faithful. Oh, glory to God. You are faithful. Thank You, Father. We give You the praise and the glory for it. You are a faithful God. And we believe and we trust in You. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Glory to God.